For those of you that are members and regular attenders here, let me introduce myself. My name's Brandon. I'm one of your pastors. I'm in disguise this morning. It really is me. Every winter, I get this sort of primordial urge to grow facial hair when it gets cold. and So I happen to time that for the date, actually. is going to be 81 degrees, so there's timing for you. Uh, if, you, if you are just joining us, if you're a visitor, let me welcome you as well. We're glad that you're here with us. Thanks for coming to worship with us, and we hope you'll be encouraged. You know, this morning, you will be brought face-to-face, as we hope we all are, with our living God. We're here to sing His praises, to look to Him, and now, at this point in our service, to come to Him and His words. So that's what we're going to do. You find us in the middle of a series on the book of James, and we're going to be in James chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 17 this morning. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1012. After several weeks on page 1011, we're really excited to turn the page today. Now let me pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. Please, uh, please pray with me. Father, we come before you and your word this morning, and we ask that you would open us, open our hearts to your word that we might hear and be transformed by it. Open your word to us. We're a needy people. We need to hear what you have to say to us. We need you to meet with us by your mercy and your grace through the power of your spirit. So it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray expectantly. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. This morning, uh, we're taking a look at what James presents is, is a pretty straightforward uh, and I, what I found to be personally incredibly challenging, but straightforward point. And, and, and here's what he's getting at in the passage this morning, what we're going to look at. He tells us that followers of Jesus are to be marked by lives that show mercy. We're to be merciful people. He says that if we know God's mercy, then we're going to be the kind of people who show mercy in concrete, tangible, practical ways to others. That's James's point. He breaks it down for us. We're going to see here that he points us to the call to mercy, the stakes of mercy, and the triumph of mercy. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, the call to mercy. 
uh, it, it, this, this may be a passage that's entirely new to you, or maybe it's one you've read in the past and or it's been a while or just coming back to it. I know what it's like to sit in the pew and this, you're suddenly barraged by all that's there. But, but one of the things I think that our eyes are most quickly drawn to just as we run through this passage uh, is the incredible heavy point that James is making in verse 12. Look back there with me. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Immediately at the center of what James is talking about, he brings us to these twin realities of mercy and judgment. And we're going to talk in just a moment about what he has to say about judgment. But let me just make the point first that, that this stands at the heart of this mercy. He says that we are to be a people who show mercy. That's to characterize us, is this call to mercy. It's central for what it means for us to follow Jesus. Now, there is a lot that could be said about uh, all the different ways in which we are called to be people who are, mer- who are merciful. Mercy is to be applied in all kinds of situations. But in context, James focuses our attention on one particular area. Okay, we started back in verse 8, covering a few verses that Camper addressed last week in the sermon, just to review that in, in what immediately precedes the first eight verses, first ten verses of, of James chapter 2, James is addressing a very particular situation in the church where he says, you are to be people who show no partiality. In fact, and again, as Camper pointed out, it's, it's partialities. There's nothing to be in our community that, that, that ranks one person above the next, but he focuses on one particular kind of partiality. He says, you are not to be people who favor the rich over the poor. And he uses what's likely an example of, let's say somebody comes in and visits the church, and they're obviously very well-to-do. Maybe they're, they're well-known in the community. They're wealthy. They're powerful. And so what happens? Does, James says, does, does someone come in and usher them to the best seat? Do they bring them all the way up to the very front row? Of course, we're Presbyterians, so the best seat's like in the middle. Does it, you know, do... Does the rich, do they come in, are they given the prime seat? And then someone else comes in who's maybe uh, very much in need, who's who's poorly clothed, who's very obviously of a different social class, and are they cared for at all? Somebody offer them a cup of coffee, bring them to a seat. He says that kind of partiality must not happen in the congregation. He says you are not to favor the rich over the poor. And then at the very end of this passage, he comes back to this particular type of mercy he's trying to discuss when he talks about our care for the poor. Look with me in. Verses 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He says that we are to be people who show, and we're going to talk about this, actual concrete care and mercy for those in physical need for the poor. So mercy encompasses all kinds of things about our lives, but James, both in what comes before and what comes at the end, he's focusing our attention on a particular kind of mercy. Mercy for those who are in, the, who are in great need, those who need physical care, the poor and the needy. He says we must be people who are characterized by this kind of mercy. And when James brings this up, he is bringing us right to the heart of a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. Let me, let me take, you, take us back to a few places in the Old Testament where this comes up, and it comes up throughout, that God cares about the poor and the needy, and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner in the land. 
If you were to go back to the book of Leviticus, this set of this book of, of many of the sundry laws that God gives His people, one of the laws, which at first maybe will sound pretty removed uh, from our industrialized world that most of us live in, it was addressed to a very agricultural world. He said, "Those of you that own land, as God's people would have," and He said, "You you raise your crops and you go and you uh, reap at the end of the harvest, and your workers come and reap." And He says, "When you do that, you are not to go through the field and squeeze it dry of every last grain." He says, you are to leave some in the field so that the poor may come in the rows behind you and pick up what's left over, that they may glean in the field because God cares for the poor. And he says, you're to care for the poor and you're to help provide for them, that they would be able to come into your field and pick grain so that they might survive also. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, and among the, the instructions Moses gives God's people as they get ready to enter the promised land, he says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns that's within the land the Lord your, your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your heart against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Whatever it may be, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Because God cares about the poor. In Proverbs chapter 15, it says this, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is the man who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Now when you come to the prophets in the Old Testament, time and again you see God's indictment through the prophets to God's people about their lack of care and concern for the poor. He comes to God's people and he says, you are not living like me. You don't care for the poor. He says this in Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I chose, that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And let me just give you one more example. This comes from the prophet Ezekiel. And he goes back and talks about the city of Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. If you're familiar with the passage in Genesis, it talks about these two cities that were destroyed by God. And if you were to go back and read in Genesis, what would be highlighted for you is you would see that they were a people who were incredibly violent and incredibly sexually perverse. And God sends his judgment on them. But listen to what, I, what Ezekiel highlights about Sodom. Here's what he says. He compares God's people to Sodom. He says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. That's what Ezekiel points out about Sodom. Because first to last through Scripture, our God is a God who cares for those who are in need. He loves the poor. He loves those in need. He is a God who shelters and brings help, and he calls us to be. And James goes to this when he talks about this kind of mercy. He says that this kind of mercy is to be defined not simply by a feeling or an inclination, but actual action. 
It says mercy is defined by its works, what it does, how it responds. Going back to what he says, James says at the end of our passage this morning, don't just say that you feel these great upwellings of mercy for somebody. Do it. Don't just wish them well, but bring the very aid that you know people are in need of. Because mercy rushes to meet the needs of the poor and needy. Rushes to meet the needs that we find that, those are, that people are confronted with. Clothes, shelter, food, a job, job training, a friend, or maybe our most precious commodity, time. It says mercy comes and brings those resources to bear on the ones who are in need. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that we are to be a people who are marked by mercy. By this kind of love and care. He says, we're God's people. We are going to reflect God's character and be this kind of people ourselves. We're supposed to be actively involved in caring for the poor and the needy. Showing mercy in all ways, but as James focuses us here, in this particular way. Mercy for those who are in need. It brings up you know, the, the question for us. Do we believe this? I mean, do we, re- do we believe it? Do we believe God really cares about it like this? Do you believe it as an individual? Do I believe it? Do we believe it as a church? We're in the middle, uh, well, towards the end of, of our latest round of, of our adult Sunday school class called the Discovery Class. And this class is for people who, uh, who've come to our church. They're interested in finding out more about the church, interested in potentially joining. And so we talk about what does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And one of the things that we do is we talk about the vision statement of our church. So if you were to look on the inside the front cover of your bulletin, it's there every week, we have this kind of pithy vision statement for our church, and then we kind of give a, a fuller explanation about what we think that means. And so I'm going to read you just part of that. Here's what part of the vision statement that we see every week says. It says this, The gospel calls us to faithful service to the whole of Williamsburg and the world. And then the longer part of it says this, We believe that the hope for our own lives, for Williamsburg and the whole world, is the gospel. The good news of salvation and reconciliation that comes only through Jesus. And so we seek to be a community that loves Williamsburg and the world by proclaiming the gospel in both word and in deed. We believe that involvement in mercy and justice isn't simply an addition to the gospel, but a vital part of the gospel. By engaging in acts of mercy and justice, we are participating in God's work of redeeming all of creation. A work that we see in part now, but which he will one day bring to its full flowering. Okay, that's part of our vision statement. And every time when I teach the discovery class with a new group of folks who are interested in our church, I say this. You know, there are a lot of things in our vision statement that I think that we, that we are really stepping into with both feet. But I'll tell you, this, is not, this isn't one of them. This does not mark us yet the way we hope that one day it will. Now, it's right for us to put that in our vision statement. It's the kind of people that we and that your church leadership wants us to be and become. Because this stands at the very heart of the gospel, that we'd be a people marked by mercy that plays itself out in real tangible care for our community and our world around us. The gospel calls us to this. So every time we have a discovery class, I say, this isn't us the way we want to be. We're not there yet. But by God's grace, we would grow in this. Because this is not yet a part of the DNA of our church. It hasn't gotten under the skin. It hasn't gotten into the very fiber of who we are yet. It's not something that we think 
or live out in such a way to believe that it really is central to what it means to follow Jesus. As a, as a church, we're not yet convinced of that. But James was. And all of Scripture is convinced of that. Why? Where's the disconnect for us? Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid of what it would mean for us in our lives if we were confronted with those kinds of needs by the world around us. Or maybe we're just too comfortable. You know, we know it would disrupt our lives. Or maybe we're unsure how to even begin. Uh, At times, I am all three of those. But nevertheless, James comes to us and says, this marks the heart of those who have been shown mercy, that we would be a people who show mercy to ours. Care for the poor, mercy for those in need is of crucial importance to God. We've seen, we've tried to see in James, and as we look back in the Old Testament, that it runs straight through Scripture. But another way we see that this is of central importance is we see not only the centrality of mercy, but point two, we see the stakes of mercy. What's at stake here? Why is this so significant and how do we know? Look at verses 12 and 13 again. He says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. James is talking about judgment with a capital J. He says, Jesus is coming back one day. And all is going to be laid bare before him. And we are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And he brings that into view and he's to the church. And he says, he talks about judgment without mercy. Because he says, we as God's people are to be people who show mercy to others. Okay, of utmost seriousness. Now when you look at that though, doesn't at least part of you think, well, come on now. I mean, is it that central? I mean, is it that serious? I mean, think about the Ten Commandments and all that God requires. Think about some of the heavy hitters. God says things like, don't murder. And maybe you think, you know, I, I haven't, maybe, I've, maybe I haven't spent myself in mercy as God would have me, but, but I haven't actually killed people. I get points for that, right? Or one of the other Ten Commandments, it says, don't commit adultery. Okay, I, I'm not destroying the community like that. Maybe does it really... Does this really fit in like that? Well, look what James points us to. In verse 10, he points us to the unity and the coherence of the law. He says the law holds together as a unified whole. Verse 10, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He says you can't just embrace one part of the law and reject another. One commentator uses this illustration. He says, we tend to think about God's law as this pile of, of rocks, okay, of all these individual laws that have been kind of heaped together. And what happens if you take a couple of them and sort of toss them out? Well, I mean, you still got a pile of rocks, right? I mean, you might be a couple rocks shy, a little mercy here, a little white lie over here, but you still got a pile of rocks. We tend to think of it as just this sort of pile. But he says, he says that's the wrong way to look at it. Instead, he says, instead, think of it as a sheet of glass or a window. Okay, maybe you've been in the unfortunate situation I was in as a kid. I'm out playing in the yard. I'm throwing this thing up high in the air, and it sails off behind me right towards the house. You know, crash into the window. What happens when you break a window? Well, it shatters the whole thing. You break maybe one little... One little corner of it, but what happens? Those little spider tendrils of crack go throughout. And he says, James is saying, when we break the law, it's not just tossing out a rock or two. He says, when you break it in any place, it shatters the whole thing. Because God's law is a unified whole. Because God's law reflects God's character to us. 
God's God's a God who not only cares about life, do not murder. He's a God who cares about the poor. You must show mercy. All of this reflects God's character to us. And when we try to separate out or minimize parts of the law, we're saying that part of your character, God, does not matter to us. James says you cannot break it apart like this, that the law is a unified whole. And so then he says, he goes on, verse 10 and 11 there, he says, okay, so let's talk about some of the other laws, the very ones we brought up, murder and adultery. He says, you can't say, you know, do not murder and say to yourself, well, I haven't done that, but I mean, maybe I've committed a little bit of adultery or... He immediately brings mercy into the same category with these laws, like don't murder and don't commit adultery. He says they are of one fabric. But, but it'd be very easy to read these verses and strangely get ourselves totally off the hook. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 11, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now, it'd be easy to think you're sitting there and you hear God's word say to you, do not commit adultery. And you think, okay, I haven't committed adultery. And then he says, but God also said do not murder. And you think, shoot, God found me out. I killed somebody last week, right? You know, most of us would sit here and go, I'm off the hook. I didn't commit adultery or murder. I'm good to go. But, but James is bringing into view what his people would have very well known the way Jesus brings the law to bear in our lives. If you were to go back in Matthew 5, Jesus brings up these very two examples. He says, you have heard that it was said to you, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you, are, if you hate your brother, you are murdering them in your heart. And then he goes on and says, you've heard it said to you, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you harbor lust in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. You see, Jesus comes and brings the true depth of the law. And he shows us that none of us are off the hook. And that's James' point too. All these things, fractures of God's law, and he says they all matter. They all matter. And he says that we are all people who come before, will come one day before God's judgment seat. Now that's also exactly the point Jesus was making in uh, Matthew 25. Now, I, I promise, I know it's daylight savings. Hang in there with me and, and, and listen to this story of Jesus because I think it's important for us to know that it, what James is saying is exactly what Jesus says to us in this parable towards the end of his ministry in Matthew 25. Here's what he says. When the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and the angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. 
And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus said that. And when Jesus said that, he was speaking, as we would read this now, he was speaking to his people, he was speaking to the church. He wasn't saying, there are, you know, there are the Christians, and then there are all those people out in the world. He says to the church, he says, you proclaim my name, you profess my name. And he says, there, there is true belief and there is a false masquerading belief. And he says, true belief expresses itself in this kind of tangible care for the poor and the needy. It's James's point, and it's Jesus' very strong point as well. Okay, the centrality of mercy and the call to it, and the stakes of mercy. God's judgment. Let's look last at the triumph of mercy. Look with me at verse 13, second part. Well, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And mercy triumphs over judgment in two ways. First, mercy triumphs over judgment in in the way God relates to His children. The way God relates to us. Because when we come to the second half of verse 13, we see what is our only hope? The mercy of God. People who have come into contact with Jesus who've been brought to faith in Him, who've been united to our Lord and Savior Jesus, He says, God's mercy triumphs over judgment for you. Because we read all of these. Don't you look and see, am I that kind of person? Am I merciful the way God has called me to be? Have I not only not murdered, but not hated? Am I not harboring any kind of resentment in my life? Where are we going to flee? Because if you look into that kind of law, as James earlier has said, you know, it, it's like a mirror that we look into that shows us who we really are. And if we're going to look into that kind of mirror and see the truth about ourselves, where are we going to turn? And James reminds us again, we turn to God in His mercy. Because we are people who desperately need it. And he says, that is what you have found in Jesus. Jesus who came to care for the poor, to care for the needy, to rescue those in prison, to come and rescue us. He says, mercy has been given to us in Jesus. He says that is the hope of the gospel for us. James has already called this earlier in the passage, and in our passage this morning, he calls it a law of liberty. It is God's law, but he says, for my people, for those with their faith in Jesus, he says it becomes a law of liberty, becomes a law of freedom for us, because we now live as forgiven people who can now step into lives of obedience. Here's the way one commentator puts it. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey Him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty. An obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin and given us in His Spirit the power to obey His will. The gospel is God's mercy being poured into us that we as forgiven people might now learn how to walk in light of God's law and love as He loves and show mercy as He has shown mercy. 
And we have to be reminded this time and again because we get it so confused. So let me ask you again and me. Why is it that God has accepted you and brought you into his family if you were someone looking to Jesus? Why? Because he looked at you and thought there would be a great addition to the team. I need that person. Do you look at you and say, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but this person shows a lot of really fantastic potential. You know, we can do something here. Or because you were beautiful and accomplished and moral and deserving. No. God brings us in solely out of his mercy. People utterly lost. Utterly desperate. Utterly messed up us. Because God, and he brings us in and now God's mercy and choice of us has the final say in our lives. Mercy wins because of Jesus. Now, so two things about this mercy that triumphs. First, it triumphs for us, his people. But secondly, therefore, mercy is to triumph in the way we interact with everyone else around us. And again, specifically, as James says, that mercy is to triumph in the way we care for those in need. Mercy has triumphed in us. We have received God's mercy and care. And he says, now we are to go and show that very same mercy and care to the world around us, a hurting, needy world. And he says, specifically, he says, you need to go show that. I need to go show that. We as a church are called to go show that to the sad and the crying. (laughs) He says, we are to go and show that very mercy to the poor and the needy who are so desperate need, he says, that will mark us because it marks our God. Because it is a characteristic of God that he is merciful. And so he says, for us as children, we have to look like our father. Our father is merciful. And more and more as we live in his family, he says he is making us to be merciful people. It's interesting. I've talked to families before where uh, they have a child who is adopted. And they'll get comments where they'll look at the child adopted, totally different gene pool. And they'll say, you know, your child really looks just like you, not knowing that they're adopted. How does that happen? Our families rub off on us. And James says we will begin to bear the image of our Father. We'll look like Him because we are people who have received mercy. And how will we know we are His? Because we will show mercy ourselves. It will come out of us. So when we look at a very needy world around us, we will put aside questions like this. Are they the deserving poor? I mean, did they, you know, did they get themselves in a hard spot or did they put themselves there? Imagine our merciful God coming to us in our need and saying, are they the deserving poor? We would be utterly lost. Our God comes and brings real mercy to the undeserving. And he says that we are to look like that too. The, James's point here about judgment and Jesus's point about judgment in his parable was not, you know, at the end of the day, if you show enough mercy to others, you will win God's favor. No, what he's saying is, if you've been somebody who has received God's mercy, if you're really in his family, if you've been changed by him, you will be naturally the kind of person who is showing mercy to others. It will come out of you. It is to come out of you. It is not the root of God's forgiveness of you, but is the fruit of it. It is the sign of it. It is a manifestation of God's salvation at work in your life that we would be merciful people. An unmerciful Christian is a complete contradiction in terms. How can we say on the one hand, we're utterly desperate in need of Jesus' care for us. We're not going to show it to other people. This levels the ground. So now there is no corner of our community that you can go into and not think this. That is me too. 
Maybe it looks different in this person's life. Maybe they're broken in ways that it has not broken out in me, but I'm a broken person too. And I'm lost in my sin too. I am no different. The only thing that is different is the mercy of God. And may I show it to them. May this community know the mercy of God through our acts of mercy as God uses us. to Show his mercy to a world around us. Okay, let me just wrap it up briefly this way. I told you about discovery class. I'm looking forward to the day I pray. One day we'll be able to sit down and have that class. And we'll come to this part of our vision statement. I'll be able to say, you know... We've really been growing in this. God has been so good. Didn't used to mark us very much, but it does now more and more. In fact, it's becoming more and more this idea of mercy. A part of our DNA is a church. Now, how are we going to apply that? How are we going to get there? Okay, here's the answer you don't often hear from the pulpit. I don't know. I don't know. But at the very least, it's going to begin with this, that we begin by asking the question. And we begin by opening our eyes and looking at the parts of Scripture that are maybe more uncomfortable for us. The ones that say, if we claim to follow Jesus, He's calling us to be merciful people and to care for the poor and the needy. We say that we love the Bible, and we do. We need to love all of it. We need to love this part. Because we are beneficiaries of this part for certain. We are people who have received God's mercy. So we must begin to ask the question, And I'm looking forward to the emails I'm going to get from y'all about, here's the way this could play out more in our church. Here's the way this is playing out more in my life. Here's the way I see God stretching me in that. And I want to be writing those myself too as it becomes more and more true of me. It scares me too. But we want to know God. God is a merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as recipients of your mercy that you would work in us merciful hearts. And to the degree that our hearts are hardened, would you show it to us? If there is no mercy flowing, would you open our eyes to that? And would you cast us again on your mercy that we might become merciful people? Lord, give us a heart for the poor, for the needy. Give us mercy in every area of our life. You are a merciful God. May we reflect your character to our spouses and our children, our friends and our family, to our co-workers, to our enemies, to this community, to the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus and thank you for his mercy.